Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. Last night, I was lying in bed. I wasn't asleep yet. I had just finished watching television. My wife and I were still awake. And the next thing we know, the house starts shaking. And it kept on shaking. I couldn't believe I was in an earthquake. And this was a decent-sized earthquake. It was over 6.0 on the Richter scale. It happened in the ocean, but not too far from Puerto Rico. I think it uh, rattled a lot of the islands here in the Caribbean. You know, I haven't felt an earthquake since I lived out in California. And to be honest, I never even considered earthquakes here in Puerto Rico. I mean, I knew about hurricanes, uh, but I really didn't think we would be uh, hit by an earthquake. And we did. Fortunately, uh, it didn't do any actual damage. In fact, I don't think anything in Puerto Rico was damaged. And of course, you know, the big risk when you get earthquakes in the ocean is tsunamis. So, uh, but that didn't happen either. But in the meantime, I've got a tropical storm overhead as I am recording this podcast. Tropical storm Karen has arrived in Puerto Rico later than thought. It was supposed to come this morning, uh, but it didn't get here till this afternoon, although Karen doesn't really sound particularly menacing, and uh, it's living up to its name. It's really just a little rain, uh, not too much wind, so that's not bad. The real disaster is not here in Puerto Rico with earthquakes and tropical storms. It's the disaster that is unfolding in the cryptocurrency markets. We are seeing some real 
carnage, a real bloodbath over there. I think this is just getting started because we've finally really broken down on the Bitcoin chart, although the big declines or biggest declines today are in the altcoins. I mean, Bitcoin is down about 13.5% right now or 13%. I just refreshed uh, the coin market cap page. Uh, Bitcoin down about 13%, although it's actually, I think, down a little bit more because I think the price that that I'm seeing uh, is actually lower than what's reflected on coin market cap. Uh, but this is about the high that Bitcoin has been probably in the last half hour. We're trading up around 8,500. We did get as low as 8,000. I think we maybe ticked below it uh, briefly. That means that from the 14,000 almost high, we got to like 13,900. Uh, that's a better than 40% drop in the price of Bitcoin from that peak, which by any definition constitutes a bear market. So I don't know why all the crypto uh, fanatics are so uh, you know enthusiastic right now. We are in a, a bear market. But what I've been pointing out that's been more significant has been the, the technical pattern that uh, Bitcoin has been carving out these last few months, a descending triangle. I've mentioned this before, uh, but this is typically a bearish pattern. Now, I know a lot of uh, uh, the newbie chartists out there in the crypto world were looking at this chart and thinking it was some kind of bull flag. Uh, And I can understand how somebody who doesn't know that much about technical analysis may have mistaken it for a bull flag, but it really was a descending triangle. And you typically resolve those with a break to the downside. And now that's exactly what's happened. We have clearly broken the support line. If you look at a chart of Bitcoin, you'll see this uh, uh, descending triangle. We pretty much have a flat line on the bottom, maybe slightly ascending. And then you have a very big descending line forming uh, the the triangle and it was compressing right the resistance was lower and lower and lower so the rallies you know kept failing at lower and lower price points but you had this this line of support and once that support gave way uh, then it was like you know a dam breaking and that's where you saw today as soon as bitcoin kind of broke below maybe 9200 or so which was really kind of the trend line in that triangle uh, we made a beeline for 8,000, and we went down there pretty quickly. So that's a big drop. Uh, we're now, again, backing and filling a little bit with a, a bounce back up to around 8,500 as I'm recording this in Bitcoin. But the bigger drop, again, is in the altcoins. Ether down 19%, Ripple 14%. That thing got ripped. Look at Bitcoin Cash down 25%. Litecoin getting a lot lighter, down 18% on the day. I think Litecoin got beat up a lot yesterday, too. So I think it's a one-two punch for Litecoin. Beyonce coin down 17%. EOS down 28.5%. EOS 28.46%. That is a big move in one day. But of course, look at Bitcoin SV. That's down 35% today. 35%. Stellar, not so stellar, down 14%. Monero down 15%. Uh, Cardano down 21%. Tron, you know, that's down 22%. Uh, look at all these things. Dash is down 19%. Tezos uh, down 20%. Neo down 19%. I mean, I can go on and on and on. The list is endless here. In fact, now I'm looking at the top left-hand corner of Coin Market Cap. There are now 2,895 
cryptocurrencies. I mean, we're almost at 3,000 of these things. The supply of cryptocurrencies continues to grow, and I believe the demand is going to shrink. But, you know, we had this rally uh, over the last uh, several days in the altcoins, right? While Bitcoin was just kind of trending sideways, stuck in that compressing uh, descending triangle, all of a sudden we had a big rise in these altcoins. And to me, that looked like a sucker rally because it wasn't being confirmed by Bitcoin, right? If the general wasn't following the troops, it didn't seem like it was a sustainable rise, just a sucker rally. And that's exactly what it was. And now the altcoins are resuming their decline I think Bitcoin, as I'm recording this, is 69.1% market cap. We still haven't gotten, I don't think, much above 70. I know we did uh, before we pulled back, but this is still close to the highs in Bitcoin dominance. And I do believe that in this decline, uh, Bitcoin will continue to lose value more slowly uh, than the other cryptocurrencies. But I think they're all going to lose value. And there is a lot of significance uh, to this break because this new technical pattern, now that it has resolved itself to the downside, there is a lot of short-term risk in the price of Bitcoin. I mean, if you look at the chart, I'd say there's maybe a little bit of support here around 7,500. Uh, so maybe we can get a small bounce off of there. But really, if you look at the chart, uh, the the next support area is probably down at around 4,000. And that's probably where we're going, maybe a little less before we get any kind of big pop, because then, of course, you're going to have uh, the Bitcoin fanatics, you know, the Bitcoin bugs are going to come in and buy on the dip. And so we may have uh, a dead cat bounce, but ultimately we're going to new lows. I think Bitcoin is going to take out the whatever it was, 32, 3300 was the low uh, late last year, early this year. I think we're going to take out that level. But there is, of course, a lot of complacency out there in the Bitcoin community. Nobody seems to care. I mean, most people seem to be excited about the decline because, hey, it gives them the opportunity to buy more Bitcoins because, after all, they're still as convinced as ever that the price is going to a million. And so the lower it goes before then, the better, because that gives them an opportunity to stack more Satoshis. Uh, but we'll see how they feel when the price actually implodes to these to these levels. You know, anybody can sell their Bitcoin and buy it back. Right. I mean, you don't have to ride it all the way down. Right. You could sell and get back in. But most people are afraid to sell because then they think the market's going to take off and they'll miss out. You know, a bear market slides a slope of hope. And there's probably more hope in the Bitcoin bear market than in any other bear market that I have witnessed. But, you know, it's not just uh, cryptocurrencies that are really seeing the air come out of the bubble. I've been talking about uh, what's been going on in the stock market, you know, ever since really the implosion of WeWork. Again, something I've been talking about for a while, uh, that that company just doesn't work, that the model is flawed and they had too much debt. But now that that whole IPO has imploded, right, it's kind of like a wake up call for a lot of investors that this game is coming to an end. And you can already see a lot of these companies that already made it out of the IPO gate, right, that aren't making money, starting to fall. I mean, look at the stock Fiverr, right? That one came public not too long ago at 21. It got as high as 44. Today, the stock is at 17 bucks. That's down another 2.64% on the day. That's a new 52-week low. 
Look at the uh, Smile Direct. I just talked about that last week, down another 8.5% today. This thing's at 1568 They came public at 23 but it never even saw 23 in the public market. The highest it was was 21 I mentioned Chewy again last week. Chewy getting chewed up today, down another 5.35%. Still above its IPO price. It's at 26 The high, though, was 41 I think, the day of the IPO. It's at 26 but it IPO'd uh, at 22 so still a few dollars uh, profit for those who got in on the IPO. But again... Uh, If they don't get out relatively soon, uh, those profits are going to disappear. But I think all of the froth seems to be coming out of the stock market, the crypto market. But this is just the beginning because there's a lot of froth in both markets that that needs to come out. In fact, you know, one of the catalysts today for the drop in the stock market and the Nasdaq particularly weak down one and a half percent. Russell 2000 also down one and a half percent. The Dow not down nearly as much percentage-wise, off about 140 points. Was a lot of the political drama that's playing out uh, surrounding the potential impeachment of uh, President Trump. Not that uh, the Congress will be successful uh, in impeaching him. I mean. The House may impeach him, but there's no way the Senate will convict him. Uh, The Senate is made up of Republicans, and President Trump is extremely popular within the Republican Party. So I can't imagine any Republican voting to uh, impeach President Trump. But the whole saga, you know, of um, Ukraine Gator, I don't know whatever they're calling it, uh, but regarding uh, the, the, uh, the incident involving the Ukraine and whether or not Donald Trump has been using money that was appropriated and meant for the Ukraine as some kind of uh, bribe in order to get the Ukraine to dig up some dirt on Joe Biden and his son and whether the president is basically withholding this aid as a quid pro quo on getting some dirt on Biden. And obviously, too, I think that Trump would rather have the dirt on Biden come out before Biden gets the nomination, because my gut feeling is that Biden is the candidate that Trump least wants to run against because he's got the least chance of winning against Biden because Biden is more of a mainstream candidate. And so it will be harder for Trump uh, to scare voters into thinking that socialism is going to wreck the country, which which it will. Uh, But I think that Biden is a much safer bet for the Democrats because you don't alienate anybody in the middle who may be too afraid that a real socialist candidate like a Warren or like a Sanders is too far to the left. You don't really run that risk with Biden. And so I certainly think that if Trump's going to derail Biden, he would rather do it now to make sure he doesn't get the nomination. Although I don't think Trump needs to do anything. It seems like Biden is kind of disintegrating all on his own. If you look at the polls, I mean, Elizabeth Warren is surging right now in the polls. Uh, And obviously this might be a part of it because Warren ends up looking good because it's not just Trump that is embroiled in this scandal, but it's Biden as well. Uh, Because Biden may have acted inappropriately to put pressure 
on the Ukraine regarding a company with which his son was affiliated. So Biden may have been using his political power as the vice president to get some unfair treatment for a company uh, that his son was associated with. And now Trump, of course, trying to get the Ukrainians uh, to dig that dirt back up uh, to somehow use it against Biden now blowing up in his face. So this whole thing, I guess, is weighing down on the markets. The markets are a little worried about this. But if you actually look at where the markets are, the markets are not nearly worried enough about the prospects that Donald Trump is not going to get reelected because the odds of him getting reelected, in my mind, are getting smaller and smaller. And this should be very scary for the stock market, given what the Democrats are promising to do. Everything is extremely negative for the U.S. stock market. Also, by the way, Bernie Sanders is upping the bid on the Elizabeth Warren wealth tax. He wants to start a tax of 1% with a net worth above $32 million. Remember, Warren is not starting her tax until you hit $50 million. Of course, that starts at 2%, uh, but Sanders is at 1%. But he goes all the way up to 8%. The top wealth tax bracket is 8% on wealth over $10 billion. You know, if you put an 8% wealth tax on wealth over $10 billion, pretty soon nobody will have any wealth over $10 billion. That really is a confiscatory level of taxation because, first of all, most wealth doesn't generate an 8% per year return. Certainly if we go into the type of bear market that I believe we're going into. But again, these wealth taxes compound each and every year. It's not just 8% one year. You pay 8% and then you pay 8%, then you pay 8%, then you pay 8%. So if you keep doing that, pretty soon you have nothing left, which is probably Sanders' goal. He wants to destroy private wealth because that's what socialism is all about. You don't believe that wealth should be owned privately. You believe in the collective ownership of wealth, of the means of production. You want to nationalize all the wealth, right? You want to get rid of private ownership of property because that's exploitation. Profits are bad, right? You're basically ripping off the workers. And so you want to concentrate all the wealth collectively through the state. And that's really uh, what Bernie Sanders wants to do. And basically when he announces a plan like that, that's basically the truth uh, coming out. Now, obviously, Bernie Sanders has been uh, losing a lot of steam uh, relative to Elizabeth Warren. So ultimately, it's probably Warren uh, who is the more likely nominee. But you never know. Maybe Bernie Sanders could end up being the VP on a Warren Sanders uh, ticket. I mean, normally you would think that if somebody like Sanders was elected, she'd want to go mainstream, maybe get a moderate guy to balance out the ticket a little bit. Uh, but in today's Democratic Party, I'm not sure if that would be uh, something that she would do. It would just annoy, uh, uh, you know, her real base, uh, the socialists that comprise the majority now of the uh, Democratic electorate. But all of this should be very, very scary for the stock market. It should be scary for the dollar. You know, the dollar is still holding up, despite the fact that we now have QE4. You know, as much as nobody wants to admit it, it's here. You know, and the dollar really hasn't fallen yet. People are still, you know, living in a state of denial. Now, of course, you know, they still believe the Fed, oh, this is just a short-term thing, right? Oh, you know, we're just doing some of these repos. It's a technical glitch. Look, they always make up excuses. 
What do you expect? They're never going to tell the truth. They stopped raising rates. They cut rates once. They cut them again. They're going all the way down to zero. They just don't want anybody to realize that they're doing that. So they're trying to pretend that the economy is improving, yet every time they're going to cut rates, this is the beginning. This is the tip of the iceberg on QE4. You know, it's going to be a lot bigger than the first, you know, QEs 1, 2, and 3 combined. But the markets still haven't let that sink in. You know, but the gold market, you know, is is showing that people are starting to figure this out. Gold up about another 10 bucks today. We're back above 1530. It seems like we have solid support now uh, around the 1500 level, a little bit lower. So we continue to ratchet up the support levels. The resistance is 1550, uh, but I don't think that resistance is going to uh, hold up too much longer. I think the market's going higher. And again, this is a reflection on the underlying weakness in the dollar that the Forex markets are not yet exhibiting. But at some point, again, just like Bitcoin imploded today, we're going to go through some key level and it's going to be a wake up moment and you're going to see a much bigger uh, drop or a drop finally in the value of the dollar really across the board. Now, I got uh, quite a few emails from podcast listeners who wanted me to comment on an op-ed that was written uh, by Ken Fisher uh, of Fisher Investments. And this was in the uh, USA Today. And Ken, you know, he manages a very large asset management company, very successful guy, lots of marketing. I mean, you see his ads all the time. Uh, if you have over $500,000, uh, you know, we'll manage a portfolio for you. And to me, I've looked at, you know, most of his portfolios and it's pretty much cookie cutter uh, S&P 500 type stuff, maybe a little bit of a closet indexer going on, a lot of large cap stocks. So pretty much just buy and hold. Uh, big cap U.S. stocks. And, you know, that's obviously worked well for Ken Fisher uh, during the bull market. Uh, I think it's not going to work out well uh, for Ken Fisher clients during the bear market. But this particular op-ed had to do with the national debt. And basically, Ken Fisher's goal was to basically diffuse any concerns that people might have about the skyrocketing national debt by saying there's nothing to worry about, right? He basically started out by saying the conventional wisdom that the debt is something to fear is wrong, right? That, that the people who are worried that the $23 trillion national debt is some type of ticking time bomb, well, they're wrong. Well, first of all, it's not the conventional wisdom. I think that Ken Fisher's view is the conventional wisdom, that the deficits don't matter, that there's nothing to worry about. I mean, that is the conventional wisdom. There's only a small group of people, right, that, that think it's a problem. Because if it was the conventional wisdom, it would already be a problem. It's because so many people don't appreciate how bad the problem is, like Ken Fisher, uh, that the problem hasn't blown up. But he's also wrong about the fact that it's not a problem. It's a huge problem. And so I'm going to get into a couple of the points that Ken makes in his op-ed, and you can read it if you haven't read it as to why he thinks it's not a problem. First of all, he says, look, other countries have larger debts uh, to GDP than we do, right? Japan or Italy. And so, hey, you know, then, you know, why should we worry? Well, first of all, look, these other countries have problems too. So just because other countries have problems that they're ignoring doesn't mean that we don't have to worry about our problem. But, you know, you take a country like Japan, and I've pointed this out many, many times, the Japanese economy is a lot different than ours in that a much larger percentage of the Japanese economy is comprised of manufacturing. 
uh, and they're still a huge creditor nation with a lot of savings. We have a huge consumer GDP based on borrowing money to, to buy stuff, 70% services. That is a far less sustainable GDP, and it's far more vulnerable to an increase in interest rates than the Japanese economy, even though they have extremely low interest rates in Japan and the bond market could collapse if rates go up. I don't think that that will inherently be as damaging to the Japanese GDP as what would happen to the U.S. economy if our interest rates skyrocketed and our credit markets uh, collapsed. Also, I mean, people forget that Japanese are the largest creditor of the United States. You know, we owe Japan, well, I don't know, 1.2, 1.3 trillion or whatever it is. They're sitting on U.S. Treasury. So they don't owe us. We owe them. Uh, so that in, improves their solvency. Of course, you know, if we end up defaulting or the dollar collapses, then those treasuries won't do them much good. But at least now on paper, Japan has this big asset uh, that we don't. Uh, but the other thing that um, that Fisher points out where he says that we don't have to worry about the debt is he says a significant percentage of the debt is owned by the U.S. government, right, or by the Federal Reserve. And and so that debt doesn't count, right? It just cancels itself out because, you know, if the government owes itself money, it has an asset and it has a liability. And so they cancel itself out. Now, that is true. But the problem is that if the liabilities are canceled out, then so are the assets. And then that means Ken Fisher has to admit that Social Security has no assets, that Medicare has no assets, because the bonds that he is so willing to cancel out, that's the money the U.S. government has promised to pay Social Security, right? Because the whole idea that Social Security is solvent until some future date is based on the fact that that trust fund has all these government bonds that the U.S. government owes, but that Ken Fisher says, hey, we could just cancel those out. Uh, So, A, you have to talk about the fact that there's no money for Social Security. But even though you have all of these IOUs that are owned by the government, even if you cancel that out, the debt owned by the public is still huge. And, of course, the debt owned by the Federal Reserve is still a big problem uh, because, ultimately, the only way they can stop inflation is to shrink their balance sheet. And the way they do that is they have to sell those bonds into the market. And so you need to find a private buyer for those bonds. And if the Federal Reserve holds off on selling those bonds because there are no private buyers and it doesn't want to drive interest rates up, then it has no way to control inflation. And so inflation runs out of control. Another point, though, that that Fisher doesn't even mention is the, the, the number of bonds that are held outside the U.S., by foreigners that represent a net drain on U.S. economy because we're paying the interest to foreigners. In Japan, almost all the Japanese government bonds are owned by the Japanese. Uh, So the money, at least the payments of interest, stay in Japan. But you have a lot of foreign creditors uh, that own U.S. treasuries, and so those payments flow abroad. And that will be a particularly uh, heavy burden on the economy when interest rates go up. Now, that is one thing that Ken Fisher does acknowledge could be a problem, but then he dismisses it because he doesn't see the risk. He acknowledges that the problem with the national debt, right, is not whether or not we can repay it because we obviously can't, right? And nobody even talks about that, right? Everybody says we don't have to repay the national debt. Well, 
you know, what if we do have to repay the national debt? Because we are borrowing the money, right? The, the, the concept is we never have to pay it back because we can always borrow more money, right? We can always borrow more money to pay off the retiring debt. Well, that's the definition of a Ponzi scheme, right? That's exactly what that is. If you're simply going to pay off your, your old debt by issuing new debt, then you're running a Ponzi scheme. And Ponzi schemes don't work. That's why they're illegal, because they don't work. And if a government runs a Ponzi scheme, that doesn't mean it's going to work any better than if a private individual runs it. Now, maybe the government can keep the Ponzi scheme going longer, right, and, and involve more people, but inevitably it's going to collapse. So at some point, I think we do have to repay the national debt. Now, of course, we can't. So that means we're going to default. And the most likely way that we default is through inflation. But forgetting about that, if we just stick with Fisher's point that, look, we don't have to repay the debt. All we have to do is pay the interest on the debt. Okay. Now, he mentions that it's no problem to pay the interest on the debt because interest rates are really low. But the big, the big uh, point that he, that he just downplays is, okay, what if interest rates go up? Right? They're low now, but if interest rates go up, we're screwed. Because then we can't afford to pay the interest on the debt. And once people realize we can't afford to pay the interest on the debt, they don't want to lend us any more money. Then they want their money back. Then we have to repay the debt, which we can't do. But um, Fisher basically says that the only way it's a problem is if interest rates go up. And he doesn't see that happening. Well, what if it does happen? He doesn't see it. There's probably a lot of things he didn't see that happened that he didn't see. This could be another one. But he kind of says even if interest rates go up, he says that it only affects the uh, the new borrowing, which is still a lot. I mean, the government is borrowing one and a half trillion dollars a year. But he says, hey, the average maturity on the national debt is six years. So we don't have that much to worry about. Well, first of all, six years is not that long a time. But a lot of the national debt, probably a good third of the national debt, probably matures in the next year, which means if interest rates spike up, it's going to affect a huge percentage of that $23 trillion national debt. The net interest cost is going to skyrocket. And an important fact that um, Fisher overlooks is if you look at who owns the longer term bonds, that's a lot of the government trust funds, the Federal Reserve, right? It's the shorter term maturities that are most owned privately. So that is the debt. When interest rates go up, it's not the money the government pays itself, right? Uh, that's going to spike up as much. It's the money that we owe the Chinese and the Japanese and all the other private funds who didn't want to take the risk of buying 10, 30-year treasuries and who were buying T-bills, right, or shorter-term notes. And so now they're going to expect their notes to roll over at a much, much higher rate of interest but we simply don't have the ability to pay that without cranking up the printing presses, which has already started. That's what's happening right now. That's why we're doing all these repos, because the Fed is creating money to prevent rates from rising because the economy can't handle it. And that's what's going to happen with the national debt. And then another thing that uh, that Fisher downplays, is he said, look, it's the debt isn't a problem unless Congress, the government starts to spend like drunken sailors, which he acknowledges could happen. What do you mean it could happen? It already is happening. But look at what is looming on the horizon. Right. Look at the Democratic nominees for president. If one of these guys wins, 
then they are going to spend money like drunken sailors. In fact, you know, that's probably an insult to drunken sailors. They're going to spend money a lot faster, and it's not their money. At least drunken sailors are spending their own money. But if Ken Fisher is not even worried about the potential for the Democrats to control Congress in the White House and to crank these deficits into the stratosphere, and he's not even worried about the potential of a spike in interest rates, Given the enormity of the debt that we have now, no, I think that this op-ed is completely wrong. In fact, I may try to write one of my own to submit, uh, we'll see, to USA Today to counter this piece. But, you know, potentially, you know, maybe Ken Fisher's, some of his clients, maybe some of them are listening to um, to my podcast and they're getting worried and he's getting some questions about, hey, you know, aren't isn't the debt a concern and shouldn't we do something about it? Maybe we should change our strategy. And so he's basically trying to reassure, I think, his clients that there's nothing to worry about, right? That guys like Peter Schiff that we don't know what we're talking about and there's no need to base your investment strategy you know, on a fear of the national debt. And of course, uh, by, uh, Fisher can point out that people like me have been warning about the problems in the national debt for years, in fact, decades. And look, the stock market has gone up. And so people who have ignored those warnings have made a lot more money than the people who have heeded them. Well, maybe that's the case today, but that's not going to be the case tomorrow. These warnings are ultimately going to prove very profitable to the people who heed them. And I think it's going to be very costly to people who follow Ken Fisher's advice and ignore these warnings at their own peril and end up going down with the ship. Now, I was reading the comments on my last podcast, and I got a lot of I noticed a lot of uh, comments rather from some people who were wondering what my you know what my solutions were to the college education problem that I I talked a lot about how government screwed it up how government drove up the cost of college with their student loans and all that but but what is my solution what would I do about the problem now and I thought maybe my solution was a bit obvious but maybe not so maybe I should spend a little time in talking about what I think is a very simple solution to the college problem right the the thing that we need to do is get the government out of the student loan business completely, right? Uh, we need to end all student loans, right? No more. You can't uh, forgive the existing loans or any have any kind of loan forgiveness program if you keep the loans on the books, right? Because that that is a huge moral hazard. In fact, I, I call them out. You know, the government has come up with over the years these modification programs for student loans, right? Where if your income is low, uh, then you can apply for a repayment schedule where you don't have to pay the whole amount. Uh, the, the payment is limited to a small percentage of your income. And then if you make those small payments for maybe 10 years, I forget the time frame or 20 years, then they call it even and they forgive whatever the unpaid balance is. Now, again, all of this stuff, right, sounds good. Oh, yes, you know, let's modify the terms. I mean, you have a job that doesn't really pay a lot of money, uh, and but you have a lot of student debt, so let's enable you to you know have some of the loan forgiven. All that sounds good, except it makes the problem much, much worse. It's a huge moral hazard, and here's the way it works. So once students know that if they get a lower-paying job and you know they work uh, in public service or for a nonprofit or they you know they they work in some job that's not very lucrative. If they know that if they have a lower paying job, 
they're not going to have to pay back most of their student loans. It's going to be modified where they only have to pay a small portion of that student loan. Well, then, hell, that takes away any resistance to borrowing a lot of money. I mean, why do we want to encourage people to borrow a lot of money who are going to get jobs that don't have a lot of income? I mean, those are the very people that should be reluctant to borrow money. If you're thinking about going into an occupation that's not that lucrative, then you need to be careful about running up a big student debt. But if the student knows going in, I can borrow all the money I want and overpay by as much as I want for this degree because uh, I don't really have to pay it all back, well, then why not borrow the money? I mean, if you know you're not going to pay it back, I mean, these kids, are they're acting as if they're like the U.S. government, right? They could borrow forever, never have to pay it back. And of course, the colleges, this is great for the colleges, if they can entice students into overpaying for college based on a sales pitch of, hey, don't worry about how much money you borrow. You're not going to have to pay it back, right? You're going to be able to sign up for this modification program. And even though you borrow $100,000, you'll only have to pay back $30,000. So what difference does it make? Once you you get above a certain percentage of what you expect your income to be, you're not going to have to pay it all back. So it's easier for the colleges to jack up tuitions even higher if the kids know that they're not going to have to repay all of the money they're borrowing. So if you're going to do anything to forgive the loans, and of course, if you have any kind of loan forgiveness program, the moral hazard there is everybody is going to take out a loan. Nobody's going to pay cash. You might as well take out a loan and just hope it gets forgiven, right? You're going to encourage a lot more people to take student loans if there's the prospect of more loan forgiveness in the future. So the first thing you have to do if you want to forgive some loans, and I basically think that we should Uh, forgive some student loans. But before we can do that, we need to make sure that no student loans are ever taken out again, at least not with a government guarantee or not by the government. So number one, government ends student loans, cold turkey. No more student loans, no more aid to colleges, nothing. Scholarships, they're all gone. Guaranteed loans, direct loans, nothing, right? The government is not involved in it anymore. They're completely out. That's number one. Now, number two, then we can go, once we've done that and we no longer have a moral hazard, we can now allow uh, student loans to potentially be discharged in in bankruptcy or something like that, or some type of modification uh, to to help these kids that unfortunately uh, made a lot of bad decisions when they were very young, encouraged to do so by older people who should have known better. And and so we need to forgive some of these loans, but that also means that people are going to lose money. Lenders are going to lose money. Taxpayers are going to lose money. Oh, well, that's going to have to happen, right? That's the mistake. We know we're going to have to pay the price for the mistakes that we made. There's a lot of debt that needs to go bad. Student debt is just one of them, right? So we get the government out completely and we find a way to allow people who have too much debt to have some kind of modification so they have some chance of living a normal life and can get out from under the debt. Now, what happens going forward when kids can no longer borrow money to go to college. Well, this is a huge wake-up call for the colleges and universities, right? Because if they don't slash their prices, they're going out of business because they're not going to have any students, right? So immediately, the colleges and universities are going to have to start cutting back on everything. They're going to have to take a meat hook uh, to their business. They're going to have to get rid of all the unnecessary personnel. They're going to have to make significant cuts to their spending. And that's good, right? All of a sudden, they're going to be subject to market forces because now their potential customers are shopping with their own money. And so they're going to be very uh, cost conscious. 
So now the colleges are going to have to drive down costs in competition with one another to get their customers. And, you know, this is going to happen. And, you know, this obviously, that means there's going to be a lot of layoffs uh, in, in that sector. And oh, so what? That's what has to happen in order to get colleges uh, competitive again. Now, will as many people go to college under this system as are going to college now? Absolutely not. Right. Because there will be people then who make a decision because they have to pay for college up front. Right. And maybe they'll have to get a job in order to work their way through. But there will be a lot of people that will be forced to make a financial decision that they're not going to really benefit from college, that they really don't need a college degree, that maybe they're not cut out for academia. They didn't do that well in high school. And, you know, there's some other areas that they could excel in and that they should pursue rather than higher education. See, right now, everybody just goes, what the hell? You know, the government's providing the money, so I don't have to come out of pocket. And so everybody is going to college. But once people have to factor in the cost and it's more of a real cost benefit analysis, a lot fewer people are going to go to college. But then with a lot fewer people going to college, the people that actually go, well, the college degree will actually have some kind of value again because it'll be something that not everybody else has. But all of a sudden, when a lot of people stop going to college, a lot of jobs that don't require college degrees won't. I mean, right now, as long as everybody's going to college, sure, okay, yeah, let's make a college degree a requirement uh, for these new jobs. But once a significant percentage of kids stop going to college, well, then the employers are going to look for another way to screen their applicants because most of the people who would be appropriate for these jobs are no longer going to college. Fine. So we'll find another way to screen applicants. And, you know, that's fine. So the, the free market is the only solution, right? We have to get the government out of the college education system completely, just the way it was before. And if we do that, then college will once again be an affordable pursuit for the people who actually can benefit from it. And the people who don't really benefit from college won't go. You know, and they won't waste all these years and waste all this money. And it's not just the individuals that have suffered. The entire society, we have wasted all of these resources, basically warehousing kids from 18 to 22, 23, 24, 25. They're wasting years that they could have been productive. They could have been producing and adding to the collective output of society. But instead, they're just wasting resources and wasting time, uh, basically learning nothing of any real value. You know, anything if they want to learn, I mean, people can learn on their own. They can read. You don't need to be in a university or a college uh, to learn, right? These universities and colleges exist to serve themselves, not their students and not the nation. And so if we get the government out of this and allow market forces to come to bear, uh, then we're going to have a, a much more efficient utilization of resources. Uh, our education dollars will be spent in an efficient way, in a way that actually benefits society and will free up all the resources that we've been squandering right, on what amounts to phony educations. And now all those resources will be available to be used productively in the economy. You know, another thing I noticed, too, about in the comments of my, on my last video is a lot of people really liked that podcast and they thought it was one of my one of my better podcasts. But I noticed a number of people pointing out one particular podcast that they thought was the best one I ever did. And that one was what it means to be an American. And I looked up that one and that is podcast number 265. And I did that on July 6th. 
2017, so just over two years ago. And I'm looking at the YouTube version of that podcast, and it only has 22,000 views. I'm not sure how many people listen to it on on you know Shift Radio or you know uh, iTunes or one of the places that has my podcast. But there are only 22,000. Uh, views on YouTube. Now, when I do a podcast today and I put it on YouTube, I I typically get 50,000, 60,000 views. So my audience has clearly doubled in size over the last couple of years, which is a good thing. But if this really is the best podcast I've done, and I don't know whether it is or whether it isn't, I think I've done quite a few really good ones, but this one seems to have gotten a lot of comments on my last podcast as being the best one. But if only you know half of my current audience actually listened to that particular podcast, I would really encourage everybody who is listening to me now who wasn't listening to me a couple of years ago to go back and listen to uh, 265, podcast 265, what it means to be an American. You can either listen to it on Shift Radio as one of the old podcasts, or you can listen to it on YouTube, right? And just search it, what it means to be an American uh, and, uh, and have a listen. Because if, if, again, if it's my best podcast, I want to make sure that a lot of people who have recently started listening to me Go back and listen to that one. And, of course, there's probably a lot of really good podcasts uh, that I've done over the years. If you just started listening, they're all up there. So you can kind of go back and, and and hear what I've been saying. Because, you know, the more you really listen to what I've been saying over the years, the more you're going to appreciate how much of the stuff that I've been saying is actually happening now. Right? It's important to recognize that a lot of the things that are happening are things that I have been talking about and warning about years in advance, right? And we're only now starting to see a lot of this stuff happening, although there were other pieces of evidence that have been coming out over the past year or two that really uh, validated what I had been saying going back five or six years on these podcasts, but particularly now. Particularly now, a lot more stuff is starting to happen that is really validating what I've been saying. And if I got this much of it right, the odds are that I've got the rest right. It's the people who are very surprised and making excuses uh, regarding what's happening now. They're the ones that are wrong. I mean, they don't know it yet, but they are. And, And so I've been preparing people for an inevitable outcome that a lot of people have dismissed. A lot of people like Ken Fisher want to deny as possible, but we are staring this crisis in the face. Remember, we were on the precipice in 2008. That could have been a complete implosion, but for the actions of the Federal Reserve and Congress, which simply kicked the can down the road and delayed the problem and made it even worse. But remember, none of these experts saw that coming. And without the actions of the government, it would have been a complete implosion. But now it's going to be an even more complete implosion because now the next time the government will be incapable of performing the same trick again. So we were prepared before 08, but the government was able to bail out the people who were not prepared. Those people are not going to get so lucky the next time around. So you really have to make sure that you're prepared. And I think the more you listen to my old podcast, the more confidence you'll have in the strategy. 